Welcome to the PZNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America. And today we have the privilege of a special guest, Dr. Mansi Kotwal. Dr. Kotwal and I are good friends from when we worked together in the emergency department in Washington, DC. And since then, she has moved up the road a piece to Johns Hopkins University, where she is a second year fellow in allergy and immunology. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I want to start with some of the biggest questions that I have in your specialty area. So let's get to it. I think the most obvious diagnosis for us to discuss first is anaphylaxis. And I had a student who missed the diagnosis of anaphylaxis on a simulation in a child who presented with a food allergy exposure and hives and wheezing. And she called it an allergic reaction and decided that she was going to manage it with Benadryl. And she specifically noted that it wasn't anaphylaxis in her justification. So when I pressed her on it and I asked, okay, if this child died from the exposure and their symptoms, would it be anaphylaxis? And she answered yes. So this told me that it was actually the diagnosis that was difficult for her. How can we as providers better recognize anaphylaxis more readily? Yeah, so I I think that's a great question. Um, Samson et al.'s definition of anaphylaxis, basically in a nutshell, says that you have to have exposure or likely exposure plus two systems involved or exposure and hypotension. They've actually broken down the definition into three very specific categories. So the first category is saying that you have acute onset of an illness, so within minutes to hours after the exposure, with involvement of either skin or mucosal tissue, and either respiratory compromise or reduced blood pressure. The second category says that you have two systems involved, occurs rapidly after an exposure to a likely allergen, or the third one is reduced blood pressure after exposure to a known allergen. However, I think just like in the case of the you know, student that you presented, if you have a patient in front of you who is symptomatic, you're not going to sit there and go over this definition and really think about the details and ask yourself, you know, does this meet criteria or not? And you really have to make um, a quick clinical judgment about what you're going to do. So I, I do think that just really thinking about exposure plus the two systems or exposure plus hypotension and keeping it that simple um, is the best way to really define anaphylaxis and help you, I guess, help guide you uh, to figure out what you want to do from a treatment standpoint. So anaphylaxis is going to present within minutes up to, you know, a couple hours of the exposure, just to note um, skin, angioedema, tongue swelling, or eye swelling. Those are all in the cutaneous category. But I will tell you that if you saw somebody with hives and angioedema, while you can just start with Benadryl, If you gave somebody epi, I don't think anybody would fault you. GI symptoms, they should be persistent. So they can be mild. It doesn't have to be severe GI pain, but, you know, they should be persistent. It's not like a, you know, 30 second belly pain after eating something. Respiratory symptoms. I think this is actually really important because when we think of respiratory symptoms for anaphylaxis, we think of wheezing, Um, but they can actually range from anything to nasal, from nasal itching to rhinorrhea, to upper airway symptoms like hoarseness or stridor, to your lower airway symptoms like wheezing. 
Cardiovascular symptoms can be anything from feeling slightly dizzy to having palpitations to actually full-on syncope. And then for little kids, I think this is actually one thing that's really important because probably not many people know this, um, but for little kids, especially behavior change can actually be a sign of anaphylaxis. They can be more fussy than normal. They might be more sleepy and they might actually also refuse to do things that they normally like to do. So I think that all of those things kind of are something to keep in mind when you're looking at a patient in front of you that you have concern um, for anaphylaxis. That is super helpful to know, especially some of those more atypical presentations. So now that we've recognized it, we need to act upon it. And I think that can be a scary process for a lot of parents and providers. How can we be less scared of epinephrine? That's a really good question. Um, first, I just want to reiterate that, you know, the mainstay of treatment is epi. And I think one of the biggest things to remember is when in doubt, give epi. It's actually a very safe medication in the majority of patients. I think giving epi is not only scary for parents, but also for providers, because we are taught that anaphylaxis is a severe reaction, which it can be on initial presentation, and it can also progress if not treated correctly. But it's really important to remember that anaphylaxis presents in a variety of degrees, just like we talked about before. In the allergy field, we actually do something called food challenges for patients with various food allergies, if their IgE levels and time since their last reaction indicate that one can be safely done. So we're actually giving patients baby bites of allergenic foods over the course of several hours. So we pay attention to each sneeze, each sniffle, each hive, each red dot on the child's face. And there are times where we're really on the fence about what to do because the kid doesn't look perfect, but also doesn't look quote unquote that bad. And it's so interesting because once we finally pull the trigger, give the epi, they turn around so quickly and you know you made the right decision, not only from whatever symptoms they were experiencing, but also from a progression standpoint. So my best advice really is to know that, know the definition, know the reasons to give epi, and just like you're alluding to, don't be afraid to use it. It would be so much better to give it when it's not needed than to not give it when it's needed. That's definitely great advice. And tell us what is the current evidence surrounding some of these other adjunct medications like steroids and antihistamine in either the acute or subacute management of anaphylaxis in children? Those are all really great questions. And I think that it's a topic of confusion for a lot of providers. So steroids, they're actually often used to treat acute anaphylaxis in the ED. And I know you and my Self have done that probably several times. But if you actually think about it, one, the onset of action of steroids is several hours. So it's not going to do anything for acute anaphylaxis. And there's actually no evidence to suggest that it's going to help prevent a biphasic reaction, which is a reaction that you'll see anywhere from six to 24 hours after the initial reaction. I don't think there's any harm to giving it, but I definitely don't see any need to send someone home with it for three days, which we often did in the emergency room. I don't know if the practice will change anytime soon. If you think about it and you're in an emergency room setting, all you want to do is give them everything you possibly can to hope that they'll be better and they can go home and be home safely. I just want our listeners to know that there's actually no benefit in giving steroids. In terms of antihistamines, so 
Benadryl, Claritin, Zyrtec, those are all H1 antihistamines and they're fine to use in hives or itching, but they, again, do not treat anaphylaxis. So first you will give your epi, then you can give these medications to help treat the other symptoms. Both Benadryl and Zyrtec are actually available in IV form. So in the setting of acute anaphylaxis, I would say that that would be more ideal. But if you're sending someone home with three days of antihistamines, you can do any of those options. And then, so on that same trajectory of antihistamines, what about H2 blockers, which are also similarly in that histamine blocking class? Is there any benefit of adding famotidine or ranidine? Yeah, so H2 blockers can help um, with the additional relief of hives. We used to give it in the ED all the time, as you know, again, especially in conjunction with the three-day course of steroids for home, but they actually don't serve any benefit. There's no evidence that it's needed. So I personally don't use it anymore. And I actually have seen it less and less often used. So you're telling us that all these things, aside from our antihistamines, don't really have great evidence to support giving them. But what does have great evidence is the EpiPen. Home with the EpiPen, right? Yes. Yes, that's probably the most important thing. Up to 20% of patients will actually have a biphasic reaction. So again, that's that reaction that's six to 24 hours after the initial one. And that's actually often the reason that we have patients stay in the emergency room for an observation period for several hours. But going home with an epi is a must, not only for the biphasic reaction, but also for future accidental exposures, especially because it might take some time for them to see their primary care or see an allergist. I do know that it is, especially in an emergency room setting, it's very difficult to get someone home with an EpiPen, especially if someone comes in at 3 a.m. So really trying to make sure that you send it to a pharmacy that's 24 hours, if possible, especially because the patient is going to be observed for several hours after their reaction, if the parent can go pick it up so they literally can leave the emergency room with the EpiPen, that would be the most ideal scenario. I know that not all hospitals are equipped with a 24 hour pharmacy, but trying to do that for a patient would be in their best interest and yours. That was Dr. Monsi Cotwall, pediatric allergy and immunology fellow at Johns Hopkins University Hospital. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP, where we focus on a practical application of evidence-based practice. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the Peds NP. Find me on Instagram at the Peds NP podcast. DM me or send questions and comments to the Peds NP at gmail.com. You can see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're learning for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.